Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a hilarious comedian who you might know from The Birthday Boys, a great musician who you might know from The Sloppy Boys, a writer, director, producer. Heck, if you've got a hat, he's wearing it. (laughs) Jefferson Dutton is here. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, George, you make me blush over Zoom. Hey, you don't sound like you're from Philly. Uh, well, so I actually grew up in North Jersey, but, uh, you know, just just kind of generic accent, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, East Coast. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, we're, we're thrilled to have you here. We actually had Tim on as well to talk about Jaws. I saw that. Movie, That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into horror? Well, I was a scared kid. I Sam. think, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think I um, it, it probably has contributed to my more lasting appreciation of horror that I was a little, uh, I didn't get it as a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. I I, actually, as a kid I saw, and I had a much better tolerance for like sci-fi horror type stuff. Like even a little bit too young, I maybe saw like alien and the thing and, um, geez, those will do it. (laughs) Yeah. Like those are, those are like very scary movies, but those didn't scare me as much as like a slasher thing or uh, like a demon-y exorcist type thing. Like, for whatever reason, maybe it's because I was raised Catholic. I had, um, I was scared of witchy shit, demon shit. <laughs> and now, I mean... Felt too real. It, it kind of, it, yeah, honestly, <laughs> I don't know. I think so. But, like, I remember watching The Fly as a kid. And, oh, my God. And, you're really picking the, the top scary dude, ones. Well, like, I looked, I looked at the list that you had, and, like, you've picked a lot. You've had a lot of good guests, and you've talked about a lot of good movies. But I remember seeing The Fly and being like, this is fucking awesome. It's scary, but, like, I, I feel like I'm part of it or whatever. And then we get to the maggot birth, oh, and man. I wanted to puke. <laughs> I remember being a kid and being, like, sick to my stomach watching it. But anyway, uh, I didn't see any Freddy or Jasons until I lived in L.A. I might have, wow. I might have like seen one, but Hanford and I made a point to like watch all the Fridays a couple of years ago. Oh, nice! So it's been an evolving thing, me and horror. Very cool. Did you find that because it was a little more campy and everything, you were able to kind of come to it and be like, oh, this is, you know, it's a slasher, but we're so far removed from that feeling realistic at this point. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, especially the Fridays because yeah. they're so <laughs> they're so like uh, they're the first one, or mm-hmm. I, I think like maybe technically don't don't at me everybody. I'm sure like <laughs> Halloween was the first one, and then we get into uh, the the Fridays. But they're so just like literally a group of teens go to the woods and they're picked off one by one. Yeah. There's no twist. There's no take. It's not, <laughs> it's not cabin in the woods, final girls or anything like that. It's like, this is laying the groundwork. That's why they did a fucking million of them. And that's why we can now do a take on that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I always love hearing from people who work in comedy and are also into horror because of the relationship that they share with the audience in terms of like setup payoff they're so integral you're getting into it baby (laughs) i sure am uh um yes i'm is is your experience with comedy that you find bleeds over into how you react to horror yeah and it's one of the reasons like if i ever if i ever get a chance to like really pitch a horror thing i will say this exact shit that you're saying which is (laughs) like it's true uh i read an interview with uh jordan peele i might be like repeating what he's saying word for word but both comedy and horror seek a very specific and extreme reaction from the audience. And how they go about it is just a really, really careful control of tension 
and release. Yeah. And it's just like, they're exactly the same how you would go about it. It's just that one, you're trying to get a laugh and one you're trying to get a scare and they're both like laughing and a scream. That's some real lizard brain shit. You, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like they're both they're both like subconscious reactions you're trying to get out of people. Strong animal lizard brain shit. Sure. I mean, fear is literally that's it's tapping into as primal of an emotion as you can possibly get. Really. Mm-hmm. I, so when when I went to reach out to you, I read that you were working on a paranormal thriller, which I would love to hear about if you're comfortable <laughs> with that. Too soon, George. Too soon. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I also am curious if that's a sub genre that you find yourself gravitating towards or if that's just that just happened to be where inspiration struck yeah i mean i i love comedy and my comedy boys and i hope i get to do it for forever but growing up i wasn't like i'm gonna be i want to be a comedy writer like tim kalpakis memorized like snl scripts and knows (laughs) everything about every sketch and was always in the room being like "Mm, you know like like SCTV kind of did this and he'd be like, what SCTV kind of did this. And like, he knows all that stuff, like the back of his hand. He's like really encyclopedic about comedy history. And I'm not that way. I've got far flung interests and Mitch and I were kind of the horror people. Actually, you know, Chris too, but my interests are definitely not limited to comedy. I hope I get to do some, some thrillery stuff. I I love the, uh, the Jordan Peele trajectory. I would love to do something like that. That's awesome. And Hey, I hope that for you too, because I think that people who do, cross over from one genre to another are able to sort of utilize tricks from all over the map in a way that helps to uh, elevate all aspects of it sort of the sum is greater than the parts yeah well let me ask you this george i mean because i have uh mixed feelings about comedy horror movies or like horror comedies uh they don't always work for me no definitely not and and reanimator really does i remember seeing evil dead 2 in high school as a young male with a driver's license, and it really scaring me. <laughs> and people would always be like, oh, those are the best like horror comedies and stuff. And uh, as I got into college and watched Evil Dead 1, 2, and then Army of Darkness, they get kind of like funnier as they go. Right. But none of them strike the balance that Reanimator has. Reanimator just feels like a smarter comedy. Like they're both, they're both campy, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't even know if I'm using that word right. No, I think you're right. And I think that it's interesting because to me, Reanimator kind of feels like a scary movie that happens to be written by some funny people. Yeah. And that humor just kind of leaks in. Whereas something like The Evil Dead 2, they were like, we're going to make a horror comedy. This is, yes. g- we're, we're going to try and find this balance. And, you know, in sometimes in seeking out that balance, you wind up tipping it one way or the other. Yeah. And when it's a more natural evolution of the script, like I feel like it is in Reanimator, it comes through in, in a more subtle way that yes. it's not hitting you over the head with the comedy and being like, do you get it? We're funny, too. It just it's, happens to be funny. It's such a strange thing because I think the comedy might be over some people's heads with reanimator in a way that it couldn't be with evil dead because they're you know evil dead they're literally doing like looney tune shit with like the possessed hand yeah yeah it's like full-on slapstick whereas in reanimator there's just this sort of like constant creeping like lunacy to like (laughs) why do they keep doing this this is the most the most ill-advised thing they keep doing they're like it wasn't quite fresh enough yeah i don't know and okay the fact that they keep a straight face through it all as well really helps with it you know there's a lot of the evil dead where i mean don't get me wrong i love evil dead i love evil dead too me too me too when 
there are times when they're basically looking at the camera and winking and being like, hey, this is fun, isn't it, right? Isn't it dumb how we're doing this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't ever get that feeling with Reanimator. I feel like the humor, like you say, is in the bafflement of being like, how are you getting to this point? How are you letting it get this out of control? And and it's like, it's really dry in a way. Like, you know, Airplane is goofy, but I guess it reminds me of like Leslie Nielsen specifically in Airplane mm-hmm. or like that sort of, there's the the cold open of Reanimator. They're in like, what is it? Switzerland, yeah. Germany. And uh, Herbert West's mentor has been reanimated, we assume. Yeah. And he's like, he's like convulsing and his eyes explode and he collapses. <laughs> and, and the other, the other doctors are like, oh my God. And they check his pulse. <laughs> it's, it's like, <laughs> his head was like literally the, pulsating. The, he's the done, dude, guys. the dude's, the dude's like eyes just swelled up and exploded and he screamed and fell. <laughs> and to check his pulse, I was like, if you don't think something's up by that point, but in the world of what's happening, in the world of the characters, it's scary stuff. I don't know. They walk this really weird line where it feels like Lebowski or something. Just this weird, you have to kind of be clued into why it's funny, which yeah. isn't going to work for as many people as uh, the slapstick Evil Dead stuff, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So we're not going to beat around the bush anymore. We've been talking about it already uh, this whole time. But to introduce the movie, we're talking about 1985's uh, Reanimator from Stuart Gordon. As a little peek behind the curtain for the audience out there, this is genuinely one of my personal favorite horror movies. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it's based on the 1922 H.P. Lovecraft novelette Herbert West Reanimator, which led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole of the distinction between book types. No one will care about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Go for uh, it. <laughs> turns out there's flash fiction, which is under a thousand words, then short stories between a thousand and seventy five hundred words. Then novelettes, which go up to 17,500 words, and anything between that and 40,000 is a novella before eventually becoming a novel over that. So now we all know this fact that will never, ever come up in anyone's life. <laughs> That's cool. What, so what's Reanimator? Reanimator is a novelette. So it is uh, between 7,500 and 17,500 words. So. Right. Have you, have you read it? Uh, I have not. So I was going to, and then... Everything that Stuart Gordon was saying is like, yeah, we took it, but really it's more like Frankenstein, and we just kind of like took the bones of Reanimator and uh, applied it to it. So I was like, eh, I don't need to read it. I got enough stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I got like a big-ass Lovecraft book, and it's not great, or... <laughs> It's not for me. I didn't. I didn't like plow through it. Also, it's like as thick. It's it's as thick as like two Bibles next to each oh other. It's it's gigantic. <laughs> but it it is good because they're all super short. And I I did get to Reanimator because it was towards the beginning. And I was like, well, I'm at least going to read that. Yeah. And it is very much. It's pretty much the same. The thing about the the story, the what what did we call it? A novella? No, novelette. The, the thing about the novelette is that it takes place over like years and years. Mm. And, and like they'll have an episode and then the reanimated thing will like escape into the night. And then it'll be like five years later, Herbert West and I like hadn't talked in a while and he hit me up again and the thing was back. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of got this weird long-term dread aspect to it. Also some light racism or not even light. Uh, That's HP over, for you. <laughs> yeah, that is HP. I don't know. I'd say if you can like find a PDF of it online, check it out. All right. Uh, you, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, um, 
what I thought was interesting about this movie is that it did go through a lot of transitions. It was originally devised by Gordon as a stage production uh, with his longtime compatriot and screenplay slash stage play writer, Dennis Paoli, uh, and then a half hour TV pilot and then 13 episodes at an hour each. And then finally the movie that we know and love. And the idea came about because Gordon was like complaining to his friends about the amount of vampire movies, which relatable. Yeah. (laughs) To this day. Yeah. And he said, where's my damn Frankenstein movies. And then somebody asked if he had read the novelette, I assume because of those similarities to Frankenstein, where it is sort of like the monster goes off into the night and then the doctor Frankenstein is sort of like on the hunt for him all these years. Mm hmm. So I, there, that's probably where the uh, parallel was for them. There was a theater in L.A. that doesn't exist anymore called the Steve Allen Theater, named for the uh, late night host. Or it was also called the Center for Inquiry. Mm. And the whole point of it was that it was like an atheist's church or like library or meeting space, I think. Mm. And there was like a lot of Houdini shit in there. And there was a lot of like esoteric kind of cool stuff. But they had a theater where they would do a lot of comedy shows. And I remember seeing that they did Reanimator the musical or Reanimator right. live, and it was Stuart Gordon. I had and like I, I hadn't. I don't know if I'd seen the movie at that point, and I was like, "Oh, Reanimator, like the uh, like the movie. That's cool." And then after I'd seen the movie, I found out that the guy Stuart Gordon himself had done it, and I was so uh, I was so bummed that I had missed it. But that's funny that I didn't know it was originally conceived like that. Like that. Yeah, he actually was a huge stage guy first and foremost. Uh, he worked in Chicago a lot, and he worked with a lot of the same actors in like a troupe, basically. And that kind of bled into his movie career as well, where he sort of brought back a lot of the same actors because you develop that relationship and you, you're like, we, I know what these people can bring. I know what they can um, adapt to the roles and everything. So I feel like there is a lot of his stage time influence that sort of bleeds into it. I also, so the musical, I, yeah. I wish that I could check it out. The I literally reached out to the music composer to be like, Ooh. hey, man, what's up with this no soundtrack? There's nothing out there. And yeah. he was like, we're, we're trying. We have a great uh, cast recording done, and it just hasn't been put out all these years later. We want it to go out, and uh, you know, it just hasn't been put out. And so I am here to say, whoever has the rights to the reanimator the musical cast recording, please put it Let's out. Let's get it out there. <laughs> Man, that's cool. Unfortunately for Stuart Gordon, he did not have a giant H.P. Uh, Lovecraft compendium, and the Herbert West Reanimator novelette was long out of print by the time that they were looking for it, and so he had to go to the Chicago Public Library to read their copy. <laughs> and wow, uh, yeah, they they had it like tucked away in their like uh, older books section, and he he did love it, but. He realized that it would be like way too expensive to recreate turn of the 20th century America. And so they updated it to be modern Chicago. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. By the time it had become the TV show, however, Bob Greenberg, who was a special effects guy, had really been hammering it home to Gordon that the only market for horror was in feature films. At the time, they were like, this is not going to go anywhere if you have it as a TV show. And so he introduced him to Brian Usna, who was a pretty new producer at the time, but 
they wound up working together for a very long time. And Yuzno liked the script. He convinced Gordon to film in Hollywood because of the focus on special effects. And he made a distribution deal with the famous Charles Band and his company Empire Pictures in return for post-production services. So really like a who's who coming together of, of big names, even if they weren't big names at the time. So to yeah. me, it's really not not that much of a surprise that this wound up being so great. Yeah, uh, I've only... Uh I've of using this stuff. I watched Society this year. Wow, have, That's have you a hell seen of a that? Movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man, I thought it was like uh, kind of bad, except for like really worth the price of admission for um, the effects, <laughs> the shunting. Which, which oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> which I th- I think were um, that guy screaming Mad George. Yeah. That He's VFX great. dude, uh, yeah, like some of the most like absurd body horror shit. But I remember seeing seeing uh, Yuzna and was like, I know that name. Where do I know that from? <laughs> but have you? I don't want to jump ahead. Sure. Have you seen? I haven't seen any of the sequels. I have seen all of them. I saw Beyond Reanimator and Bride of Reanimator, and they're fine. I mean, okay. they're not as good as Reanimator, but uh, I would say that if you really like this movie there's enough in there that you could get out of them to enjoy great i i think that you would probably like it better than society I would oh say. i'm sure I, I would i would hope so it would have to be the bar the bar's low uh next question have you seen from beyond i have i like that movie too let's not get too into it because that's going to be something hopefully somebody will pick someday sure but uh shares a lot of the same dna right that's absolutely also jeffrey combs yeah also based on hp lovecraft also lovecraft yeah and then one last (laughs) one last uh you know spiritual sequel or whatever i watched frighteners last night have you seen the frighteners that's the one i haven't seen george i gotcha baby (laughs) okay That is just another, um, that's where I first saw Jeffrey Combs and I thought that he was like, I thought that he was Jim Carrey for the first 10 minutes. Wow. Uh, He's as twitchy and crazy as he is in Reanimator. He's like, it's like exponentially crazier in Frighteners. But Frighteners is like a, uh, I want to say 96 Peter Jackson movie that Michael J. Fox is in. It's great. Who says no to that? I, I mean, it's it's on my list. I, I you know, there's so many movies out there. <laughs> yeah, check it out, folks. You got time. It's it's uh, that's right. Yeah, we're all in lockdown, lockdown, so you might as well. Okay, back to Reanimator. But Yuzno was right to make this move to Hollywood because the effects are a huge part of this movie. I mean, as fun as the performances and everything are. This is like a splatter fest. It's got all kinds of fun goop and gore and everything in it. And, you know, John Nolan did the makeup effects and just so, so great. He got all kinds of gross photos from the Cook County morgue and he used a forensic pathology book to accurately capture the way that blood settles in a corpse that and like creates all the skin tones and everything. And Mm. uh, when I was looking through the credits, it said uh, the special thanks to uh, Dr. Daniel Del Baccio, MD from the pathology department at Henrotten hospital and Dr. Robert Stein, MD at Cook County morgue. So thanks to them for the movie looking so good. Oh man. That's so funny that they went through all that, but then you do still have like, there are several shots where, (laughs) 
uh who's the dr hill yeah you can tell that they like you know they couldn't decapitate an actor or like <laughs> they, they couldn't they couldn't like green screen out anything so the frame would be just like just under his chin <laughs> <laughs> and like there's a lot of sort of just clever uh framing and stuff like that it does work it's just funny that there are insane visual effects going on but then there are just like cheap and easy high school movie yeah. techniques too <laughs> that's that's part of what i love about it though is that it really feels like they're just throwing everything at the screen making it work pulling it together by the seat of their pants and uh i, I love it i think that all the silly like head stuff makes Man, me laugh so much <laughs> when his head is in the dish oh and and the body goes and grabs fresh bags of blood <laughs> and just like squirts them in the dish and the head is like ah uh, like <laughs> he needs fresh blood he can it's breathe so and talk but he needs he needs right. gotta keep blood. him lubricated in there it's like okay <laughs> yes sure i also i was reading that like because he was stuck in that tray in there he couldn't like move around and david gale who's who plays dr hill um was a smoker and he was like stuck in there for like seven hours and so jeffrey combs had to like come over and just like feed him cigarettes oh my god stuck in there so good shout out to jeff combs putting in the work though you know that's so funny i would love to see see photos of that <laughs> Oh, man. And, like, you know, if his head is through the dish, because they had a good-looking dish, and the mm. dish has water in it, like, there's no way, there's no way that there's not, like, blood just trickling down that guy's neck, and yeah. he's stuck under that fucking table for <laughs> hours as they as they get these shots. Man, uh, yeah, I, I really hell. appreciate how down and dirty it is, you know? It really is, and, you know, put the emphasis on dirty, because Nolan said that Reanimator is the bloodiest film he's ever worked on. Previous to this, he had never used more than two gallons of blood. This used 24 gallons. That's funny because, like, yeah, it's bloody. But is it that bloody? I feel like I've, se- I've seen bloodier. I've seen. definitely seen bloodier, <laughs> but it's just funny that, like, it's people are just, like, coated, like, on their mouths and everything. They're just constantly yeah. leaking blood out of That's orifices. true. That's true. So it's not always as, like, explosive in terms of gore. But you also do, like, when they pitch things at the wall, like, they pitch things at the wall, like, five times in this oh, movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, like, frequently it leaves behind, like, a little gob of brain or yeah. whatever. <laughs> like, the, like the cat. Oh, man, that, that look. I, it's funny because I just watched the movie Elves and wouldn't okay. recommend it. It's, I mean, I watched it because it was supposed to be one of those like so bad it's good movies. And I certainly laughed a few times at it, but I've never um, even heard of this. Keep going. The guy who played uh, Grizzly Adams was, uh, was in it. <laughs> so, um, but basically there's a cat death in it and it really sort of put the reanimator one in perspective where, I had a really hard time watching the cat death in elves because like they'll just like shove it in a bag and they put it in the toilet and drown it. And like, you see it like struggling in there. Yeah. And it's, it feels so much more uncomfortable to me than like, you know this what? Crazy cat attacking them and then getting like just hurled at the wall. You're fucking right. There's something about a bag death that is, uh, scary. And, yeah. and like, I think it's because it kind of hides the pain and you have to imagine it. But mm-hmm. also Mandy comes to mind. Also, there's a fr- there's a Friday. There's a Jason movie where somebody gets like not set on fire in a sleeping bag, but maybe like 
there's maybe two. like he, maybe like batted against a tree while yeah. while in a sleeping bag. It's in it's in seven, uh, but they like cut a huge part of it, and so in Jason X, the last one, they do the oh, like yeah. recreation of it, and the like two hologram girls are like, we love having premarital sex. Yes, yes, <laughs> man. I mean that's funny, but fuck Jason X, it was so bad. <laughs> Look, I, I I it's certainly not nearly as good as some of the other ones, but. I, I, I don't, right. I don't hate right. it. The the frozen nitrogen kill, pretty fun when he smashes that. Uh, all right. <laughs> I, I guess like, I just, I, I don't like uh, that look of those dimension films. Like there's this rash. That I can get behind. Yeah. Of like, of like that, of that like blue white light mm-hmm. uh, with like the, the fakey like giant fan that yeah. industrial, like <laughs> that's in like every dimension yeah. studios movie. Anyway. No, certainly uh, the aesthetic is not my favorite, but there there are a few kills in it that that I will I'll support. But the the most difficulty in terms of special effects for this movie came came from the headless zombie that you mentioned earlier. Where mm-hmm. and it's like it's not like it's in an insignificant portion of the movie. <laughs> and no, <laughs> Tony Dublin designed the mechanical effects for Doctor Hill, but he had to, literally in every scene he had to use a different of a, a technique because. You can't just remove the 10 inches of head because it throws off all the proportions and everything when you haven't actually removed anything. So this included stuff like doing the classic Halloween costume move where you build like the upper torso and you have David Gale like bend over and stick his head through. Just really funny, like like you said, down and dirty kind of stuff where they're just like, make it work, get his head out there. Mm -hmm. And And I love that. Took him six weeks to shoot. After starting at the end of November of 84, and one of those uh, post-production services that Charles Band had promised them was composing the score, so he looped in his brother Richard Band to take care of it. Reanimator's score is pretty well known because Band adapted the Bernard Herrmann score for Psycho to create it, and he used that as a base, and he changes up the theme while deliberately trying to maintain that Herrmann vibe. And I'm curious, as a musician, if the score is something that stands out to you. Yeah, I remember Mitch was bagging on me. He was like, "You don't know the score from your animator," and I was like, "I don't, I don't guess. I, I guess I don't know." And then when I uh, watched it recently, I was like, "It, rem- <laughs> you know, what it did was it, it reminded me of Busta Rhymes' "Give Me Some More," <laughs> which uh, which samples Psycho. Yeah, and then I, and then to the because it's got the. But then also, it's it reminds me of Mars, the planets. Are you are you familiar with the planets? No. <laughs> so there's like this old, this like classical music a set of songs. I don't know what the what the word for it would be, but there's a song for each of the planets. A suite. A, a suite. And <laughs> Mars is the one that you definitely know. It's like dun 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 dun. You've heard it like, and everything kind of does it like terminator 2 kind of sounds like that but there's a little bit of that in reanimator 2 but it's great it it plays throughout the whole open of the movie yeah good job good job that guy i can't believe he didn't get sued or whatever like uh, for, <laughs> like pharrell yeah it's funny too because everyone was like like even at the time people were like this is this is just the psycho score <laughs> and uh uh, there were critics who literally like this movie rules, but I have to take off like half a star because they're just using this, like they're blatantly ripping off Psycho. Sure, so. but also it's funny that people weren't very litigious back then, or it yeah. seemed like like there were just kind of like a handshake deals for 
Like every movie made so much compared to the budget back then that was like, eh, nobody's going to go to court over this shit. <laughs> Plus, I mean, if you're going to steal a, a score, you might as well go to the granddaddy. <laughs> go with yeah. Psycho. True. Um, it's a it's a great damn score. So, but eventually the movie finally released on October eighteenth, nineteen eighty five, in one hundred and twenty nine theaters. Now I know this whole section of the episode is contextual information, but to give a little context to this context, both the multiplex and saturation booking were on the rise in a feedback loop until it eventually bloated into megaplexes. But this was this kind of landed right in the time, and one hundred and twenty nine theaters is like nothing. You know, from 1970 to 1975, AMC Theaters, which is still one of the biggest chains, but, you know, this is one of the basically founders of the multiplex theater. They added 43 multiplexes with more auditoriums and less capacity. And then this ballooned to 10% of the 16,712 indoor movie theaters in 1981, having more than one screen. And in the rest of the first half of the 1980s, the multiplex became the norm and single auditorium theaters just ceased to be built pretty much. Yeah. And as the multiplex took hold, this cemented the transition away from roadshow style screenings to wide releases of movies, which had already begun in 1959. Hercules started playing in 600 theaters. So even back then, you know, when saturation booking was just starting, they were already in way more than that. But the December previous in 1984 saw Beverly Hills Cop as the first movie playing on more than 2,000 screens at once. So mm. just to give you an idea of what 129 theaters means for a release, things were uh, certainly playing all over the, the world and the U.S. much more than this. So it had a very small audience, but the fact that it was able to build uh, you know, and develop this following that it has, I think really speaks to the quality of it. Yeah, and wasn't it rated X when it first came out? Yeah, they just didn't go to the MPAA. And so it oh, basically had oh, the equivalent okay. of an X. And so gotcha. theaters weren't interested in it and, you know, rental places weren't interested in it. <laughs> they basically were like, "Look, we're going to make it do with this, but when it came to when it came time to go into like rental spaces, they did wind up making an R-rated cut that had to use a lot of different material. The well, so, all right, so before I get to that, though, just to talk about the budget for one second, it had sure, sure. a $900 million budget, uh, made almost two-thirds of that back on opening weekend before- Sorry, going- 900000 Yes, excuse me. Like, $900 wow. million. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, uh, that would be a very different movie. $900,000 budget, making back almost two-thirds of that on opening weekend before going on to make $2 million at the U.S. box office. So, you know, it, it made money. Good for them. Yeah, still, still uh modest yeah i kind of expect i mean i obviously over time you know and all the hot topic t-shirts it's it's made more than that but <laughs> yes uh yeah over the years certainly but uh but on, on its release that was all made and because they were looking to make more money back because it was such a modest opening or modest run they had to hit the editing bay in order to allow for a home release because most stores wouldn't carry anything that was unrated or anything and so the r-rated version runs 93 minutes and has a lot of the gore edited out and replaced with various scenes that had been deleted for pacing purposes, uh, including a subplot with Dr. Hill hypnotizing several of the characters and a short scene that showed Herbert West injecting small amounts of the reagent to stay awake and energized. And I think that's a really interesting scene to not have in the theatrical run because of course, injecting himself with the reagent seems like it would have unintended effects, driving him nuts and explaining the erratic behavior. So 
it, you know, the movie clips along real nice without these scenes. But when I watched the extended stuff, I was just like, man, a lot of this stuff is really interesting and sort of fleshes out the the character decisions and everything. So. Yeah. Hey, that's okay. That's how it works. Oh, gotcha. Sure. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm I'm a little unclear on like how he was able to uh, like mentally control the dead at the end. You know, uh, yeah. there's there's that thing where he's like. His sort of coup de gras is that he he kind of can summon everybody in the morgue to attack our heroes, right? And I was like, by then it's just like fun and fine and whatever. <laughs> but but they but they did a really good job of nailing down the rules up to like those points. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, and even with that, like you know, you noticed that this just kind of happens out of nowhere. But right, there are all these little scenes that got cut out that show him like sort of hypnotizing people who are alive and and there are still sort of remnants of it where he like looks deep into people's eyes and like herbert is like here's my notebook i don't know why i'm yeah you're right also what's his fucking deal with like you know the location of will in the brain and everything yeah hill's always like burning into people's skulls he's like like uh, fire drilling into people's skulls (laughs) and then taking a q-tip and like getting some liquid out of it (laughs) which by the way he's just checking it out i love that stuff i got no got no problem with that the q-tip going in the first time is so funny yeah oh yeah uh but that that there's like psychic powers afoot too is like (laughs) Huh? Just never, never discussed. <laughs> They're just like, yeah, it's there. Deal with uh, it. Okay. <laughs> you know, I wonder though, like, because whenever I try and write something that's like a little mystical or a mm. little, a, a little paranormal, there is that weird thing where, unlike comedy, keeping stuff from the audience is engaging. Mm-hmm. Where you know, in a thriller, you kind of don't want to know what's going on, and you got to you want to you want the audience to kind of like lean in to put together the pieces. Like, oh my god! Like yeah. Game of Thrones is so good at that. Like they give you just enough to like put it together before somebody comes out and actually fucking says it, which <laughs> is like so much later than they've given you the pieces. The first time anyone saw Star Wars, mm-hmm. like now we all know like what a Jedi can do or whatever. But the first time people saw Star Wars, were they just like, okay, now he can do this? <laughs> Those were the droids they were looking for. Yeah, actually. Like, <laughs> like the mind trick is like, that's convenient. There's, there's a bunch of stuff where like if you don't know what Star Wars is and what Jedi are. It, does it frustrate you how the how the abilities kind of come to light, or is that well played enough where it's like, okay, that makes sense? I don't really know the answer to it. Yeah, I think a lot of it just depends on how much goodwill you've built with the audience up to that point. You know, if you've created a movie where they're like, I'm along for the ride, then yeah. they're they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, I guess. But if if someone's already frustrated with the movie and they feel like even up to that point, you're just playing fast and loose with the rules. Then you're just like, oh, sure, you can do this now. That's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, I feel like that about so many new blockbusters. They're just like, okay, I guess if you f- <laughs> fucking say so. Like every Transformer-y, Ninja Turtle-y, Marvel-y thing has like some element of that. Yeah. But... They un- they unleash the their power that they had hidden the whole time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I agree, frankly. <laughs> but reanimate, give it, give me reanimator with a guy putting a Q-tip in the hole in somebody's forehead. 
that's all we're asking for. I'll forgive that a lot faster than I will something that costs like $500 million to make. Oh, yeah. And what's interesting to me as well, though, about the all the different versions of this movie is that uh, director Stuart Gordon has expressed his preference for the unrated version over the R-rated version, even though that does have some of the more backstory stuff. But as of 2013, there now exists the integral cut, which has oh. both merged, coming Hell in yeah. a, a whopping 105 minutes compared where to do, the, Where do I find that? It, it's on a uh, 2013 German Blu-ray uh, that, that or produced in Germany. It's obviously still in English, but yeah, it's, it's re- I, so I watched it put together and I like it. I like having all that stuff, but I kind of agree with Stuart Gordon in that having it move so quickly in the theatrical version, it's just 86 minutes, yeah. clips along so nicely. I think that I like that better than the integral cut, and I think that the slowing down of the pacing to explain all that stuff doesn't necessarily work to the movie's yeah. benefit. I remember the first time I saw Reanimator, I was happy that, like, this thing fucking moves. And mm. they spend a good amount of time. They do a good job, like, first you first you think Herbert West is the bad guy. Because mm-hmm. everything he does is, like, sketchy and shady. And you're like, I don't know about this guy. <clears throat> and then you get looped into his world. Yeah. And then the threat becomes the Dean. And then they play that out for like 15 minutes. And then the Dean, we know what happens to him. <laughs> and then Hill becomes the bad guy, but not for the reasons you think, because he want now wants the, he wants the reagent. He wants the credit for it. Right. So there's like all these different shifts and layers in the conflict. And then of course the final thing is just like, you have an undead Hill <laughs> who's doing all this crazy shit. And it, it does just sort of heighten nice and smoothly and it turns corners nice and smoothly it really a, a cruelly efficient movie. I love a 90 minute movie. My God. Oh, hell yeah. <clears throat> Dude, I see a movie that's over two hours and I'm like, Ugh. get me out of here. <laughs> they do that intentionally for uh, like the Marvel movies because of international. Uh, like they do that for the international box office. Like it's more, it's more like, I don't know if it's culturally common or like if it's more just financially feasible that, like a movie that is two and a half plus hours long plays better internationally. But I feel like every fucking Marvel movie has an extra 20 to 30 minutes towards the middle back that could just be lifted. Like, do we really need to go roundabout to get the glowy thing to come back to do the thing? (laughs) They could all be movies that I would really like, but they just collapse under their own weight. Definitely. Uh, they bloat they bloat they, like crazy and and like i don't more is not better the the only superhero movie where i was like i hope this never ends was dark knight uh two uh batman right. chris chris nolan two <laughs> where we're like we, we take care of joker and then we're still still dealing with two-face i i i was just like i hope this movie never ends i'm so happy there's more movie <laughs> <laughs> you're totally right about how you know they so many things just feel like they're in there to add that length. My my favorite Marvel movie is The Winter Soldier, and oh. it's because it feels the least like a superhero movie to me. It feels like a spy movie that happens to have superheroes in it, as opposed to superheroes going around and being like, we need to get the orb, and then we can put that, uh, yeah. that gem into my Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> that, none of that is in there. It's just these people being like, we need to get to Russia or Germany or whatever and hack this computer. <laughs> Shit. Yeah, it's like a super-powered like, Tom Clancy movie, yeah. like an espionage movie. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I agree is basically what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> uh, 
I'm curious to see what they do with X-Men now that they have X-Men. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just talking about something specifically where uh, somebody was like, Daniel Craig, there should be Magneto. Oh, in, okay. In the new X-Men, like when they incorporate the X-Men. But because the Marvel Universe is so based in current day, I don't think that Magneto should be the X-Men villain that gets brought in because as much as I love him, especially I think that this might just be because I am a Jewish person, but let her rip. I want to hear this. So much of his backstory and what makes him compelling is baked into his being a Holocaust survivor and that being his motivation and everything. Mm -hmm. And in order for that to still be the case, he would have to be a decrepit old man. (laughs) running around in modern day yeah and either that or they would have to change his backstory and to me magneto without that backstory is not magneto anymore um so so i don't know i don't know although you know you you know the the other crazy thing that uh they never quite reconcile in the comics and i i'm curious to see how they do it in the movies is that like in the Marvel, you know, comic universe, if you get bitten by a radioactive spider, if you get hit by cosmic rays or gamma rays or whatever, it's like you are a hero with you're a superhero and we love you, yeah. says says the general population. <laughs> However, if you get your powers just from uh, puberty, if you're a mutant, <laughs> you are uh, you're you're abhorred sure scum and like get out of here muties and and i never like reconciled like to me coming in i was just like they're all superheroes <laughs> what's the i don't understand yeah. how and and i don't really think they've ever done a good job of of justifying why that's why i kind of think that x-men was doing pretty good outside of the marvel universe even though fox is like mixed bag yeah it 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 doesn't it's cool that that was the only in the marvel universe that's the only way of getting crazy powers is to Mm. be born with them and that's it and now that you're they're being folded and it's like how do you make this distinction but like between oh mutants are the worst we hate mutants but we love tony stark and we (laughs) love captain america it's like i don't know how you do it i don't know either I don't know either. I guess we'll just have to uh, wait and find out. I'll say this. I hope they don't make it a Wolverine-centric X-Men. Oh, yes, I agree. Like, make Wolverine one of a team, make him old and hairy and squat compared to the rest of your (laughs) sexy, young, fucking 20-year-old heroes. That would be interesting to me if he was... He's not the main dude anymore. I feel like we've had enough Wolverine. Definitely. Um, Also, haven't done this in a while. Shout out to all my X-Men fans out there. (laughs) Yeah, that baby. Used, it used to come up very frequently on the podcast. Good. <laughs> Fucking love X-Men. Talking about it all day. <laughs> Hell yeah. So shout out to Jeff Dutton as well, who is one of those <laughs> X-Men fans. <laughs> but so reception to Reanimator was positive. Even though it didn't make a ton of money, It was people liked it uh, with a lot of accolades going to Jeffrey Combs himself as Herbert West. Yeah. In addition to stealing the score uh he got a lot of comparisons to anthony perkins in psycho um came up more than once it's my opinion that's about as high praise as you could possibly get i think that anthony perkins in psycho might be the best performance in a horror movie for my money george can i disappoint you tell me you haven't seen psycho (laughs) i have not seen psycho oh my god jeff you gotta see psycho i know i've seen vertigo (laughs) i've seen the birds i haven't seen psycho i'll do it look 
I'll watch the Vince Vaughn psycho. Oh, no. <laughs> the monkey's paw, one more finger curls on it. I will, I will watch it. And, and again, if you're listening, don't at me with your Anthony Perkins shit. Exactly. He's already fixing it. Don't, don't yell at him about it. He By said the time you hear it. this, I'll have seen it, and I've, got, I've gotten away scot-free, baby. <laughs> um, Reanimator itself, like you said, went on to get two sequels and a musical adaptation, so it did finally get on stage, but uh, there is also an idea from Brian Usna for a Island of Dr. Moreau-influenced fourth movie that I would very much like to see, I think. Cool. <laughs> and aside from Reanimator, and because of, yeah, like I said, he found his niche working with this sort of troupe of actors and, and utilizing Lovecraft as an inspiration, he said that this was very much sort of inspired by Roger Corman doing his adaptations of Poe. And so Gordon Usna Combs and Barbara Crampton as well, who is in this movie, uh, would work together on From Beyond in 86 and Castle Freak in 1995 as well. Oh, I have to see Castle Freak. That's been on my list for a while. I think it's on Shudder. It is. And uh, it's very good. It's it's not as good as Reanimator, but it's, it's good. Mm, mm. And uh, he also directed an adaptation of Dagon without the crew in 2001. So definitely found his niche in terms of working with Lovecraft material. Cool. How, how are you on Cthulhu type stuff? We're talking, uh, you know, Lovecraft material. Yeah. I feel like that's his big thing. And I know nothing about Cthulhu. I, I think that the old ones stuff is really interesting. But I also think that it's so hard to capture something like that because the whole... The, their whole thing is like you it would can't drive even you describe. mad. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I get the theory of it, but I've never read one. Right? Yeah, it, they're 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 not bad. I like so those are some of the Lovecraft things that I've read. But um, to me, it's just so hard to do. The thing I yeah. think comes the closest. Yeah, I was going to say like uh, like I I love the thing. It's top ten for sure. It's yeah. Carpenter's Carpenter's best, I'd say. And I feel like. They were trying to do In the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, Del Toro was Del talking Toro about was trying, trying to do it. Do it. Yeah. It sort of like, well, I mean, good if luck. Someone's going to do I mean, it. I guess Del Toro yeah, is, is a uh, good choice. I mean, we have the thing, so we kind yeah. of, we don't, don't we already have this? But, exactly, all right. exactly. I, I think um, the thing for, in my opinion, the thing still scares me the most. Oh, it rips. It's it, so fucking good. It, yeah, and... I think that a lot of that has to do with because if you asked me to describe the the like the thing, I would just yeah. be like, it's just a puddle of flesh, a mountain of it. Like I I can't describe it to you. And so much like there are recognizable parts of it where you're like, that's a human head, but why is it in the middle of this mountain uh. of, of meat? And that to me, that just offness, the the yeah. human twisted that's the scary thing to me that's why yeah. body horror gets me so much is when it's adjacent to human and and like the the intelligence of it is just this like ghost that yeah. like you can't ever really see in its true form and it just jumps around and you have to be a suspicious of everyone around you it's so primal yeah and uh you know that uh, the DP Dean Cundy? Yeah, that Cundy flair. Oh, Cundy, he's the man. He shot Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, uh, he sure did. Uh, he he had an interview sometime where he said that, like, you know, the the ending of the thing is that uh, McCready and Keith David's character right. are are like have like a standoff after the base has been burnt, and they're just like sitting in the <laughs> they're just sitting in the in the freezing snow. 
staring at each other and they each suspect that the other's the thing. Yeah. And Cundy says that there is an answer to who is the thing at the end because he discussed with Carpenter that all the characters would have um, a pin light in their eyeball throughout the movie and that the thing would never have this. So I don't know if you need to be watching on 4K or whatever, (laughs) but I guess that even in that last scene, you can see that somebody has a pin light, has like a pin dot glint in their eye and... And one the does other not. One does not. There you go, folks. Go back and check it out. See what you can see. <laughs> Two things that I will say, jumping off of that, is one. I also recommend listening to the commentary track for the thing because, gosh, any time that John Carpenter and Kurt Russell are hanging out, they just have they just have so much fun together. Yeah, and they should I, just do another do another movie. They should do it. To I mean, look. You're hey, both did, getting up there. You could make something a little less actiony, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Carpenter's looking like the fucking crypt keeper. But uh but hey, did Carpenter direct that new Santa movie he's in? He should do that. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Christmas uh, Chronicles three, directed man, by John Carpenter. Another another like funny, it's not a horror movie, but uh Big Trouble in Little China is so mm-hmm. good. Oh, oh, so great. And there is sort of that like monstery stuff that he's still using there. Um, have you seen uh, The Color Out of Space? From yeah. I, honestly, so good. I've had people be like uh, kind of poo-poo Mandy in Color Out of Space. And first of all, I think it's funny that those were both released like within the same year and both were produced by Elijah Wood's company and both yeah. have, have Nicolas Cage in them. <laughs> no, but that, that's fucking awesome. Uh, and oh, way yeah. to go, Cage. I'm glad Cage owes so much to the federal government that he needs to do <laughs> like a bunch of B-movies. But Color Out of Space, when he has that... Okay, no, no, <laughs> there's so much to talk about. When he is mad and when he's yelling at his daughter and what does he say? He's just like, nothing is fucking anything up. <laughs> and he like... Oh, the delivery God. is so funny. It's, it's just so like, funny. good, let Cage just let her rip. Yeah. And the, the other thing I was not prepared for was the merging of the mother and the kid. I oh, was, my God. Like, did not know it was that kind of party when that when that scene happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is some full on, that's, that's fly maggot birth shit right it there. It really that is, is. True, true body horror. It really is. And I mean, there's that movie uses tension so, so well from the cutting board scene where you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, you know, it happens where she chops off the fingers or whatever. And <sighs> you know that there's something messed up laying on the ground and they wait so long to show you, you know, I went with my buddy Mason and we both got just ripped out of our minds and I paid for the whole seat, but I only use the edge. Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, I-, I love in that movie how they talk about there's a pink light that that is kind of like emblematic of all the crazy, the me- meteor shit. Yeah. But the, the way- titular that, color. The, the titular color. But <laughs> but the way that the characters talk about it, they were like, it was all the colors. It was a color I'd never seen before. Like for us, the audience, it's pink. But I love that stuff. Because yeah. when I was a kid, I had this idea of like, it hit me like, what would a color that you'd never seen before look like? Can't even and describe it. You can't even describe it. And I remember I would be when I, I remember when I was a kid, I thought it would it would be a cross between orange and silver. And then I realized that it wouldn't be a combination it, it couldn't be a combination of any colors, you know. Right, because you could just do that and then be like, look, I've seen it now. <laughs> but uh that's also how people describe UFO stuff. 
There you like go. and and ghostly stuff and yeah. in, in uh, you know whatever how your mileage may vary on uh, on how much you like to buy into UFO stuff but I've seen some stuff that's very colorful and it's kind of oscillating mm. colors like a a gold light that's a then a red light and a you know flickery so I, I really like I really like the sort of mashing up yeah of of all that stuff oh similarly have you seen the ritual i have seen it i really like the scene where they're they're staying overnight in the in the most haunted house in the in the forest <laughs> and there's there's like a crazy lightning storm outside and then there's like one lightning flash that just holds and it's oh, like yeah. silent that that feels like this this sort of weird mashup between you know witchcrafty devilly culty stuff and kind of classic abduction stuff yeah i, I love when religious stuff becomes sci-fi or vice versa that that coalescence that juxtaposition it works so good it really does all right we're going to take a quick break but we'll be right back to the show as we leave 2020 in the rear view and head into 2021 i think we've all earned a resolution to treat ourselves and nothing says treat like tuckins the inside out all in one s'more with a crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate and wrapped inside a fluffy marshmallow on a stick, it'll be love at first taste. And there's all kinds of great flavors that you can mix and match, including original, cookies and cream, peanut butter cup, and even some rad seasonal flavors. Plus, unlike a regular s'more, Tuckins can easily be roasted indoors or out, over the fireplace, the fire pit, even the stovetop will do the trick. And they stay delicious for up to three months in the freezer. So head to Tuckins.com and use the offer code BEST20 to get a whopping 20% off your order, while also letting Tuckins know you heard about them from the Best Little Horror House. That's T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com and BEST20 for 20% off. So make the new year a sweet one with the no-mess inside-out s'more. And now, back to the show. So, to get into the actual plot of Reanimator now... Oh yeah, we haven't gotten to that. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> At the University of Zurich, uh, the Institute of Medicine in Switzerland, there is some distant crying as cops and us, as an audience, are slowly led to the room where Herbert West is crouched over a convulsing Dr. Hans Gruber, not named after the diehard villain, just a coincidence, but a fun one. And like you say, Gruber stands back up and his forehead pulses and his eyes explode. Uh, and it turns out that he had already died and been brought back to life by Herbert, but that the dosage was too large. And when he's accused of killing Gruber, West retorts, I gave him life. <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> What an opening. I mean, I just love it so much. Like, it, it, I think it really kind of is like, this is what you're in for. You're either on board right away or just, you know, cut your losses and get out now. Yeah, he's the man. Uh, yeah. He did a great job. I want. I wish he did more stuff. He should be like, you know, he should be like Christopher Walken level famous or, you know, recognizable. He, sure. he, still, he still does stuff, right? Yeah, I think he's, I mean, not at the same rate, but I certainly co-sign that he should be in more and more famous. Um, but I, not I too famous. Great. Not too yeah. famous. Don't turn right. him into Bill Murray like a no. meme. No, no, definitely no, no. not. There's there's a sweet spot in there for you. Um, and I mean the the opening credits kick in. They kick ass all over town, man. These fluorescent medical diagrams and the scores pulsing, and I, I just think it really. You're like this is what you're sitting down for. This is exactly what the movie is going to be like. Um, and so West has been expelled, and he arrives at Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts instead to keep studying. And speaking of Terminator, fun fact, this is the same building as Cyberdyne HQ in T2. Okay. So that's a fun fact. <laughs> and 
We meet Dan Kane, who's another medical student, played by Bruce Abbott, who's doing chest compressions on a flatlining patient. And the attending doctor is telling them to call the time of death, but Dan refuses to accept it. Some great foreshadowing for his relationship with Herbert and where the story goes. I, I, he brings the body to the morgue, and I really like this over-the-shoulder dolly shot that they used to follow him down the hallway there. He's clearly buddy-buddy with the security guard uh, who muses about the locked doors. Nobody wants in and ain't nobody getting out. <laughs> um, if only you knew, security guard. If only you knew. Yeah, there's there's a weird joke later in the movie where he's like, goes to jerk off, maybe? Yeah, he sure does. <laughs> All right. He's like just reading Boudoir Magazine in front of everyone. Looks at the page, goes, break time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dean Halsey, the dean of the school, startles Dan in the morgue, and he introduces Herbert to him. And another doctor currently doing an autopsy, who is Dr. Hill, played by David Gale. Um, Herbert and Dr. Hill have a strained relationship from the start, uh, although Herbert would rub anyone the wrong way. I mean, as you say, he is kind of portrayed as this super arrogant, like, dickhead, basically. (laughs) Yes. um, He's constantly correcting people and everything. He's... He's a really interesting protagonist character because Tightly he's wound. dislikable. Yeah, yes. he's, a, he's a real live wire. He reminds me of Ren from Ren and Stimpy. Yeah, he does. Dan puts up a room for rent notice, and he smooches his fiance Meg, played by Barbara Crampton. Uh, I really like the transition here as well, as their playful no-nos turn to yes-yes, and we cut to the aforementioned house, and they're having sex there. Of course, I would be remiss to not mention the excellent Stop Making Sense poster that Dan has up, uh-huh. which is pulling double duty as a cool poster and a reference to what our friend Dr. Hill eventually becomes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> when they finish, through the conversation, we discover that she's Dean Halsey's daughter, and I really like the chemistry between Dan and Meg. I, I think that they're like really silly and goofing around and everything. But when he opens the when she opens the door to leave, uh, her and a besheeded Dan are shocked by Herbert on the porch, and he's there to take Dan up on the apartment. And as far as character moments go, I feel like this really kind of distills Herbert all the way down. Where uh, he observes that he startled them, and Meg goes, "Yes, you did," and he just goes, "Hmm," instead of apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love the disdain between the two of them, like. When, uh, and, and like the relationship between Meg and, uh, our main fellow there, where, when Herbert is just like, I'll take it. And she's like, don't you think we should, uh, think about it? it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, She's like slowly shaking her head a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Giving huge cues. And then, uh, but he pulls out a fat stack of hundreds though. And calf rules everything around me as they say. What are you going to (laughs) say? Later in Dr. Hill's class, Herbert and he butt heads again, and this scalping is wild to watch. This is a great effect. Hill also leers at Megan during a dinner celebrating the new grant for his laser drill. (laughs) Boy, laser drill. Fun idea. Fun name. uh, Fun thing to say, but I find it really interesting. You kind of alluded to this while we were talking about the context, but the primary conflict is between, like, two scummy narcissists, but... Importantly, they do bring in characters that we like, one to be the voice of reason and one to get corrupted. Just really smart character work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to pick your favorite narcissist. <laughs> it's like like any election. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too true, unfortunately. <laughs> um, 
But uh, Herbert has converted the house's basement into his own personal laboratory. Um, and like you said, Meg, clear disdain for Herbert. She wants him out, and she sneaks into his room to see what he's up to. And she finds Dan's cat, Rufus, dead in Herbert's fridge, and she freaks. And Herbert does manage to explain it away. There's some really great dialogue in here about, what would a note say, Dan? Cat dead? Details later? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's like some actual comedy that they... That's like on-the-page comedy that... That does get in there sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And West brings back the cat. We don't see it right away, but the Yowls wake up Dan in the middle of the night. In production goofs that nobody besides me gives a crap about, I did notice that the Talking Heads logo on his Stop Making Sense poster vanished. So I don't know if it was just a different poster or what, Mm. but it's gone. So... um, Dan goes downstairs, he finds Herbert being attacked by Rufus, and together they kill poor Rufus for a second time. I but I I love the lighting in this scene. There's like the swinging overhead light that is constantly shifting the shadows on them. Um it's great. I I can't help but laugh also like I said when Rufus attacks Dan and he just like throws him at the wall. It's like so ridiculous that yeah. he just hurls this cat like the fact that dan is so ready to like pick up a bat and kind of like prowl <laughs> prowl the basement with with west is very funny yeah it's like one of the funnier scenes where throughout it's just kind of in the bones it's like what they're doing is silly it's like they're not, there's not jokes in it it's just that it's it's so ridiculous and then that scene ends in them <laughs> being like you don't think it's dead huh i'll <laughs> oh, here i'll show you and they do it again <laughs> yeah it it is very funny because it feels so absurd that that's the absurdity is is where the comedy lies oh my god it's great the impact against the wall breaks rufus's spine <laughs> and to convince Dan to help him in his experiments, they bring Rufus back one more time, baby. Rufus just can't catch so a break. So funny. <laughs> um, but now he can't move to attack them. And so it's this great, like, horrifying fascination to watch this cat, like, yowling on the table and, and just clearly in the throes of agony. Um, as Herbert says, birth is always painful. So, you know, it, it's it's it's... They balance it really well, where you are kind of like, oh, it is gross that this dead cat is, like, writhing around on the table here. But Meg walks in on the experiment, and she's horrified. So Dan, the next day, tries to tell the Dean about West's success in reanimating the dead cat. But the Dean doesn't believe him, uh, not only not believing them, but he expels Herbert and effectively expels Dan as well by rescinding his loans. There's also an element of the Dean being happy about Megan being involved and also Dan sleeping with her. But this is explored even further in the deleted stuff uh, where Dr. Hill sort of uses his hypnosis to like imply to the Dean over dinner that Dan is no good and he's just using Megan to get this scholarship and advance his career and everything because Dr. Hill is so interested in possessing Megan for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it is, you do get it still, but like I said, there is, it just has this sort of like more fleshed out element in the expanded cut. So okay. now that they're fucked, like they're, I mean, they have no other options. So West and Dan sneak into the morgue to test the reagent on a human subject in an attempt to prove that the reagent works and salvage their career. 
it looks like it isn't working, but suddenly and frantically, the corpse sits up and yells. And this thing is gross looking. Like I said, it's got blood all over its mouth and everything. This guy is uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double for yeah, 17 years. I was going to say, he's a muscle man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In in the book, that's this is like some of the... Uh, the racial stuff kind of pops up. I think Ugh. he's like, he's like a black boxer, mm. and then they they make a it's they just it's just not very not handled very well. Sure, uh, yeah, that sounds right. But it is funny that they the movie does give them just enough justification to keep doing it. Like they've never had they literally never had one positive experience using the reagent, <laughs> but but they're like, well, we got expelled, so now we kind of have to, and yeah. then like it just. Every step of the way is just like, well, we do have this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll it'll work out this time. Yeah, that it's it does escalate in a really impressive way that feels natural for them. Dr. Halsey, who comes looking for Dan, is killed when the violent corpse smashes down the door and crushes him under it with some frankly gross sound design. <laughs> like that crunch is nasty. It's a good crunch. Yeah, and then he bites off his fingers and he hurls him at the wall, too. So, cat hurled at wall, doctor hurled at wall. West dispatches the corpse with a bone saw entirely through the chest cavity. Looks gross, looks good. It's another bloody scene. The good news is, though, they've got as fresh a corpse as possible to work with now. Yes, there we go again. It's just like, well, you know, <laughs> we it's fresh. It's yeah. as fresh. That, that's what we've been waiting for. Right. All, all we did before was reanimate the instinct. Now, this time, we can reanimate the consciousness. Like, <sighs> it, it's great. It's great writing. And Dr. Halsey is indeed reanimated, but is a zombie as well. And Megan walks in looking for Dan and and her dad and is like hysterical she just has the worst timing yeah meg's the only one meg's like the heart of you know it's fun and games kind of for the guys there's not too much at risk Mm. it's it's traumatizing for Meg. (laughs) yeah it sure is dan is also kind of going through it he's he's being led along but as i said he is sort of being corrupted by his time with herbert and he collapses in shock from seeing Dr. Halsey brought back to life and and be so different from the way that he was. I think that they handle that path downward for Dan with such great timing. Like it, it always feels realistic for how he's being convinced to go along with everything. Yes. So Dr. Halsey, now in zombie form, gets put in a padded observation cell with Dr. Hill in charge. And he elects to lobotomize him for further study in one of the removed scenes. In the uh, this, see, this is what I'm saying though is that like, yeah, later, later when he when they're just like, oh, he's been lobotomized. That's enough for me. Like, I don't need to see him being like, oh, he's actually dead. Huh? I guess I'll lobotomize it. <laughs> and you know, we've seen him do the fire drill into the brain enough times. We get it. Yeah, it, I, and like, I guess, I guess it does help justify that, like, why he. He's sort of like Bub in yeah. Day, of the Day of the Dead, where it's just like, I guess because he's freshly dead, he's he can be a little bit placated. Mm-hmm. He's not just a, a a killing machine like the cat and the and the and the bodybuilder guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as wrong as it's gone, still Herbert was kind of correct in yes. that there is still some of that humanity in there. We see it come hugely into play at the very end, but just just got to be fresh. Yeah, exactly. But because of this, Dr. Hill goes to West's basement lab, and he attempts to blackmail him into surrendering his reagent and notes, hoping to take credits for the discovery. few things here. First of all, 
the music kicks in and Hill speaks very deliberately, like I said, in a way that is clearly left over from the hypnotism subplot. But it also works back into something that Hill said earlier about how in Europe, Hill's work on the location of the will is plagiarized from West's former teacher. And so this this is, it's set up even back then that he's going to come and try and steal this. I think that it's a great setup payoff moment where you're confirmed that this isn't just Herbert being shitty about his former teacher's work being, you know, aped or whatever. Yeah. By the way, I I don't like all this disparaging of Herbert. Herbert is a misunderstood genius. (laughs) Certainly Uh, he is. uh, This also reminded me of, um, like, I I like this move in movies where somebody tries to take credit for the thing the the thing is already dangerous or yeah. not without conflict like the fly this happens uh the magazine the science magazine editor like wants the transporter mm-hmm. he, he wants brundle's transporter in jurassic park nedry steals the the embryos like Dodson. that's a that's a Dodson. cool yeah <laughs> That's like that's like a cool side thing where it's just like there's some human duplicity going on in your uh, sci-fi horror movie. Cool move. Yeah, cool move. I love that too. Also in the deleted stuff, Hill sort of uses this hypnotism method of, of his or whatever to suggest that West will be his assistant and that he has to kill Dan. Sort of a sort of an Emperor Vader Luke yeah. type thing. <laughs> exactly. It really is. <laughs> But he demands a demonstration of, quote, his new serum. And so uh, West puts a few drops of it onto the microscope slide with dead cat tissue uh, and then sneakily grabs a shovel and bludgeons, then decapitates Hill. This It looks so good. Not just a really well-done effect, but even the camera work here I really like, where the body is like laid vertically into the foreground and the head sort of like topples backwards. Just really great way to cover up the fact that you have this fake head yes. falling back. I love that, uh, the shovel move, where, where it's like clearly just like a shovel with like a, with a cavity cut out for the actor's neck or whatever. Yep. But... <laughs> That's been done in a couple movies. Love it. Good move. It's uh, it, it looks good. It's nice and simple. And he puts Head's Hill into a dishpan to work with. And it keeps toppling. This is another comedy moment that really makes me laugh, where the head keeps toppling over. And so he like impales it on a receipt spike, which is just incredible the way that they're balancing this comedy and horror. But they, they swing back and forth like a pendulum. But also, uh, the NECA toy of Herbert West comes with a little uh dr hill head in a dish and (laughs) let me tell you it's a perfect recreation because that fucker will not balance (laughs) but so west reanimates dr hill's head and body separately again like you said there's always one reason to keep going and he's like oh i've never tried it separately before where it wouldn't have the ability to attack him i guess is his thought and so he does this separately but it's super creepy to me when he pulls back from the body and the camera cuts to him and in the background, Hill's eyes are open now on the on the desk. Really effective way to use that sort of like pay attention to the background. Yes. Thing. Yeah. I, I also like when um, when Herbert is absentmindedly thwacking his the head with the pencil. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun. He's also, uh, Hill has this raspy voice now from the severed vocal cords, too, which is a nice touch that they thought to do that. Another thing that's just like, yeah, that is realistic. They do make strange choices where you're just like, well, yeah, it would be that way. (laughs) And then then there's just fucking 
bonkers choices too and you just have to uh you just go with it man it's funny too because by doing those things that feel so grounded in reality where you're like oh i guess it would like fuck up his voice to have his throat cut like that yeah it kind of helps to put you in a world where you're like i believe that this other stuff yeah is just like well i guess we should reanimate the cat again if we <laughs> <laughs> like it does justify all the little things. It sure does. It sure does. And while West is questioning Dr. Hill's head, his body sneaks up behind him and knocks him unconscious, which is uh, funny, but also you're like, oh, shit. The head, or the, excuse me, the body carries the head back to Dr. Hill's office with West's reagent and notes. And it turns out that in, a, in addition to being able to control his own body telepathically, uh, this reanimation has uh, awoken his ability to do it with these lobotomized reanimated bodies as well. Okay, I didn't know that there was any telepathy involved. Well, I guess it's because it's not necessary that the <laughs> head would talk to the body telepathically mm. or whatever. It's just like, I just kind of felt like, yeah, it's the same organism, whatever. I'm going with <laughs> sure. that. Sure. Hey, look, that works too. I mean, I th- I took it as tele- uh, telepathy. It might just be that they're still connected. You know, man. <laughs> I'm a little I'm a little bummed by this edition of telepathy. To be honest, I kind of feel like you gotta you gotta pick one thing to be weird. <laughs> and um, I mean, whatever. They didn't ultimately go with it, but it's funny that there are these lingering traces of yeah <laughs> of this doctor who can control his students anyway (laughs) it is weird it is weird especially because they went to the trouble to cut out so much of it that like there's just like the little lingering things where when you're watching it you don't know about it you're just like that's kind of weird i guess i guess it just works to make him ominous that's fine yeah i guess so and so he now that he can control these bodies he sends dr halsey to kidnap megan the corpse of dr halsey hurts dan in the process and while being carried to the morgue by her reanimated father meg faints but when she arrives strap in folks dr hill strips her naked straps her unconscious body to the table and she regains consciousness as hill's body uh, places his head between her legs to assault her Mm -hmm. Um, apparently David Gale felt truly terrible about this. He himself used the term spiritually bereft to describe how he felt about that scene. But apparently that was not enough for Mrs. Gale, who left him after seeing it for the first time at the screening. No shit. Yeah. She said, how could you? And she left him. Oh, that's sad. Because didn't it he die? He, he died like not too long. At, not uh, When did he die? Like, um, Let's find out the exact date. I thought he was a character actor that I had seen a bunch, and it turns out that he like died in the 90s or something. 91, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. But I mean, I remember hearing about this scene in American Beauty. Right, yeah. And, and b- being like, oh, that sounds like not something I want to see. And then when you see it, it's like, it is kind of the ickiest part of the movie, for me anyway. But, sure. He's, but it, but he's, like, he's also it, portrayed as such a bad guy this whole time that it doesn't... Yeah feel particularly out of character for him you're never like oh man i identify with dr hill he's such a good guy again again it's like theater of the mind hearing about it your mind puts together something worse than when you see it it's like oh okay right especially because he is luckily interrupted by the arrival of west and dan this is known as the giving head scene (laughs) because it's literally a good one but he is interrupted and West distracts Dr. Hill with some great zings. This guy is just full, full of quips. He says, who's going to believe a talking head? Got oh. a job at a sideshow. <laughs> Very sassy, too. I remember that. Yeah. That's good. And uh, while he's doing that, Dan frees Megan. 
But Dr. Hill reveals that he has reanimated and lobotomized several of the corpses from the morgue, all the ones that they had gone through before and been like, these are not suitable for reanimation. Hmm. And this, this, re, this lobotomization also renders them susceptible to the mind control as Halsey is. But Meg's voice re- reawakens this protectiveness in her father. Like I said, there, there is still that trace of humanity in him. And so Megan's voice sort of turns him onto their side and he helps to fight off the other corpses as Dan and Megan escape. But West is the one who really manages to put an end to things because he injects Dr. Hill's body with a lethal overdose of the reagent uh, while the the corpse of Halsey crushes Hill's head in an extremely satisfying way. Mm-hmm. But this is, again, where some of that like body horror kind of comes out of nowhere. But Dr. Hill's body like mutates and his organs just like burst out of his body and attack <laughs> West. And it like pu- the, he pulls him in with his intestines it, oh, it's right. crazy yeah and so west in like a one last ditch effort uh he throws his bag full of notes and his reagent and he screams to dan my notes save my notes <laughs> 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 dan and megan they they're fleeing away but dan does grab the notes and as they're running one of the reanimated corpses attacks and strangles megan dan chops his dang arm off with a fire axe and he rushes her to the emergency room to revive her but it's too late Yes. So in despair, he injects her with West's reagent, and the scene fades to black, and Megan, apparently revived, can be heard screaming, birth is always painful, as Dr. West said. It's funny, I forgot about the ending when I rewatched it, and I also forgot that in both of the scenes, these are bookend scenes where, what's what's the main guy's name, Dr.? Uh, Dan, we'll call him Dan. Something, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Dan. Like in the beginning, Dan is unable to revive a patient, and it's sort of our like this is our main character moment, where it's like he cares more than the other doctors. The other <laughs> doctors are pulling him off this lady, but he won't give up. And then it's tough to see. Like, nope, that's it, Dan. That's the kind of horror movie we're in. Fuck. And yeah. then at the end of the movie, he's got his girlfriend on the same table. And then I thought that like this would be the bookend where she comes alive again. A lot of movies would play it that way. But not reanimator, baby. Nope. He's yeah. got he's got the reagent ready to rock. And like <laughs> they, they even do that thing where the scene fades to black and you see the neon green reagent is just like this is just like this little cylinder in black. Yeah. That closes down b- before you hear the scream and the credits roll. And it's just like, man, it's it's a cool ending. Yeah. And now you got me psyched to see two and three. Because also, we don't know what happens to Herbert, uh, to Herbert West. Last we saw, he was like... Intestined. He was being choked by organs. And that's it. Wow. Yeah. I think it's a really great ending. I love that they do bookend it in that way. It feels like a real moment for Dan where he could take what he learned from the beginning of sometimes you need to let go. Mm -hmm. But he has been brought past the tipping point by his association with herbert he has this this method to bring her back and he doesn't have the willpower to say no and so so he he's gone too far i think it's really great it really feels like the whole movie was leading to that point in a very natural way Mm -hmm. also one thing i forgot to mention since you mentioned the reagent this was the so that was like glow stick fluid this movie is the first use of uh the glow stick liquid on screen 
In, so, was it newish at the time? Um, I don't know. I don't actually know that. Hmm. Probably. Okay. Seems, I mean, feels like they would have been using it previously. If right. Because it, <laughs> it, 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 is, it is truly neon. Like, yeah. uh, uh, I always thought that I, that would be a great Halloween costume. If somebody could dress up as Herbert West and then, like, if you could be somehow drinking a neon drink. Yeah. That would be cool as hell. Be and cool I, as hell. honestly, probably not that difficult put on a lab coat throw on some glasses make yourself sweaty <laughs> yeah <laughs> you really twitchy yeah i noticed in frighteners that his pupils are dilated at least towards the back half of the movie and maybe the entire movie he, he it looks like he's on mushrooms or something <laughs> it's wild like his eyes are just black hey that maybe that's how he's getting to that level hey maybe <laughs> I, I um, love this dude, Jeffrey Combs. My God, I got I to gotta watch more of his stuff. It looks like he's done a bunch of animated voices for, like, cartoons. I'm, t- I'm, talking, I'm talking the Rat King from Ninja Turtles. I'm talking, oh uh, I don't know, <laughs> some Scooby-Doo shit, some... Uh, hey, good yeah. for you. I, hey, I'll always get behind Scooby-Doo. Look. Transformer shit. Yeah. Maybe I'm depressed because of the pandemic. You but got a million I, reasons to be. Yeah. I watched 37 Scooby-Doo movies this year. <laughs> No shit. Wait a minute. Yes. Animated movies? Yeah, animated, the live actions. There's a couple puppet ones, um, Lego ones. Uh, look, man, there's all kinds of Scooby shit, and I've seen just about all of them. <laughs> Damn, George. I'm I'm pretty, I'm not very well-versed with Scoob. Uh, I wasn't until this year, but hmm. now if you got a question, <laughs> trust me. All right. I feel like I could at least hazard a guess, but... We're not here to talk about Scooby. No. We're here to talk about Reanimator. And now we've reached the part of the show, Jeff, where we sum up for the people at home why this isn't just a good horror movie, but why this is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you kick things off. Sum it up for the people at home. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, this thing is lean and mean. This is an easy thing to find and press play, folks. If you haven't seen it, this is 90 minutes of your day. And you got some amazing uh, uh, visual effects that also have a bit of a DIY thing, so you can kind of see how they did it, why they did it. You got Jeffrey Combs kicking ass. He's a he's an eleven out of ten in this movie. He's a live wire. You got to see him. What else? Like I said before, you got a lot of different layers of conflict. This thing escalates. It starts. You're scared of this guy. Then you're scared of this guy. Then you're scared of this guy over here. <laughs> it's lean and mean. Worth your time. Hell, uh, look. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it does find that balance. It is funny. It has moments that creep me out. The performances are just spectacular. I, frankly, agree with the, with the comparisons to Anthony Perkins. And people who know me know, Tony Perkins don't miss. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so Jeff Combs is just killing it here. I also love the, the DIY nature of the special effects. Part of what I love about horror is guessing how they did things how they accomplished stuff and it's why i love practical effects so much more than i love cgi because there is no mystery to it in the cgi you say they did it with computers asked and answered right and with this you get to say oh he's in the foreground to block the head falling backwards or they used the shovel with the little piece cut out or oh it's just glow stick fluid like yeah all of that stuff is is stuff that i love i love that you can see the seams of how this movie was made. And and uh, I, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you were saying, like, they use a different technique depending on what the shot needs to do. Yeah. You know, a lot of times that requires a bigger budget and 
a filmmaker who is willing to do what each shot needs to do and not just throw a computer at it. Like uh, James Cameron is really good at using every trick in the book to kind of muddy the trail over like what the technique is. Yeah. There's a great scene in, I want to say aliens where Ripley is stuck in like a lab with a face hugger. Is that aliens? And she's like scampering around and there's a shot where the face hugger it's like kind of close on the ground and the face hugger like runs up to like an object and then leaps off of it onto her or towards her. Yeah. And in the commentary or whatever, he was just like, this is three shots. You can see that we actually reversed this leap. Like it was, it was like Mm. forward motion until this point. And then, and then we pulled it with a string and it's like, you have to do all this stuff. And when you cut it together, that's when you get this true sleight of hand where you're just like, I don't know how they did it. It's because they did it three different ways (laughs) in the time it took your brain to be like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that commitment to doing it right is what helps put this over the top. And the fact that it is under 90 minutes, well, that's just icing on the cake, baby. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so easy. What an easy recommendation. In the in the days of streaming where you can watch anything in the fucking world, but look, I'm going to watch The Wire. I will do it. But when people say to me, like, oh, it really gets good, like, just, just get to the second season. I'm like, second season? I don't put in that much time to get there. I, I say this. So at some point, I just, like by and large, kind of abandoned TV. I watch a couple of shows here and there, usually comedy stuff like uh, I Think You Should Leave or the Joe Pera mm. uh, Talks With You, both incredible shows. you got but, good taste, man. That's, that's oh, good shit. <laughs> but like, there's just so much stuff out there. And so for something to break into my attention sphere, I you know, if someone's like, you got to watch 10 hours of this show in order to get to where it gets good, I'm like, I'm, I could watch five movies <laughs> yes <laughs> like, yes you, you know what uh, i've had a really fucking hard time getting people to watch what's that dark oh that german show yes <laughs> hey now's you, your chance you, you stole can, the virtues you can you, i mean you can cut this if you want but no go like for it. in a nutshell i will say it is adult stranger things made in germany and so it just has this very like cold international film approach to it Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a low-key time travel show that turns into a very, very high-key time travel show to the, <laughs> po- to the point where I had to watch with a group of friends to understand what was going on. You get that discussion going, that's how you parse things out. Me and my, me and my buddies watch Twin Peaks that way. To, yeah. uh, we met every three episodes online to be like, all right, what do we think is happening? <laughs> Dude, like... Yeah, I mean, uh, there are shows that are confusing, and then there's dark. Like it is, <laughs> it it takes it takes that element of television, and like this is just what like nobody's gonna watch it hearing this because this is the most annoying thing about television is that like you know with Game of Thrones you got to know like oh my god this person is actually this person's cousin and then that's gonna come into play like two seasons later he was or whatever. a bastard the whole time. <laughs> it, it takes that and like fetishizes it it's like it doubles down on it to the point where just like my fucking brain hurts (laughs) because i can't keep track of this many families they all look the same yeah anyway you can cut all this uh i i wouldn't dream of it people go watch dark it's it's only three seasons but it will hurt your head and you should watch with a partner hell yeah and that's it great movie go watch that show as well uh jeff i want (laughs) to thank you so much for coming on this show i had such a great time talking about reanimator with you george i had a blast tell people where they can find you i mean 
I, I'll even plug some of your stuff. I said this when Tim was on. When you guys came to Philly, literally the most fun I've ever had. At a I'm concert. so happy you saw that show. Uh, is oh, yeah. is Philomoka still up? I mean, they're going through some issues right now. Where, yeah, no shit. I mean, everybody well. was, and they already were. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they they weren't technically zoned for concerts. Which, if you've been to Philomoka, it gets really fucking hot in there, <laughs> and it's yeah. very confined. But it's a really fun venue, and I hope that they manage to get it back open because. Yeah, you're just so close to everyone is so packed in there and having such a nice time. And I mean, you guys really left it all on the floor. And, uh, you know, I had an absolute blast. So people should definitely check out your band, the Sloppy Boys. Uh, tell tell them where, what they can check out, what streaming and everything. Right. OK, so the band, the Sloppy Boys is myself, Tim and Mike from the Birthday Boys. Look, we didn't know that the boys was going to be like the, the whole thing. <laughs> And there's, there's like a, so much shit now where it's just like the blank boys, the blank boys. We're sorry. I'm sorry. We named it a long time ago. And so anyway, the sloppy boys is the band. We've got three records out now. The third one came out this summer. We did three records in three years. They each yeah, came sure out. Did. <laughs> they each came out during the summer. And this one was getting this one out was hard because we had locked down. And then also for, yeah. for a while there, I had a broken rib and a broken foot and I couldn't drum. Oh my God. Yeah. So, uh, but it came out against all odds. And then and it's great. Uh, that one's called Paradiso, the new one, which is coming out on cassette very soon, like within days. And then uh, we've just recently launched a podcast. The band has launched a podcast and it's not really about music. It's about cocktails. It's also, it's also called the sloppy boys. And uh, we're making, we're going down the list of cocktails that are recognized by the International Bartenders Association. So there's a little bit of legitimacy to what we're doing. Oh, yeah. And we do, uh, we make drinks like uh, a Tom Collins, a Tequila Sunrise, a uh, Hot Toddy, you know, a, a bunch of stuff that you can make with stuff you got lying around. And then there's also some crazier shit like a zombie or a Mai Tai, which is you know, like eight or nine tiki ingredients. <laughs> One thing I love about that though, is that on some of the social media platforms, you guys have also been like, Hey, if you don't have all of these materials, here's how you can kind of make like a dirty version of it where, you know, you can kind of sub in this stuff or, you know, here's the sort of core ingredients that, you know, give you the idea of it. And I think yeah. that that's really great for sort of letting people participate and without having to be like all right i right. gotta go out and get 20 million ingredients right so. i mean if you if you follow us on social media at the sloppy boys we release <laughs> these recipes like a day in advance but also you know like like most podcasts it, it's just an uh it's just a stimulator to get conversation going we don't right. really i mean ho hopefully if people don't drink the podcast isn't too triggering and they can still have a laugh. Hell yeah. That's, that's the idea anyway. And then, um, on, on the Patreon side of things, we also have a weekly show called the sloppy boys blowout, which is not podcast related. And it's just, you know, we talk about movies and music and whatever else I said before, I can't recommend the sloppy boys, the birthday boys, everything that Jeff has got going on. I love it. So thanks. George. Definitely check all that stuff out. As far as my plugs, you can find me uh, at little horror PHL, my personal account is currently suspended for telling a turf to hurry up and die. <laughs> yeah, George, I love it. Um, so just follow me at Little Horror PHL, and um, you can, that, we're also on Patreon. If you decide that you just 
gotta have more little horror phl we got bonus episodes early and ad free episodes we're doing fun stuff like uh riff tracks style commentaries and um all kinds of good stuff so that's cool check that out that's pretty much it for me jeff thanks again man this was so much fun and uh everyone out there go check out reanimator bye bye